earlier on investing. Oh, I need to see that person. That's still pretty common. I'm sure there's still a lot of investors out there that are saying, ah, you know what, Ravi, I'm interested to invest in you, but we got to meet and shake hands. I got to look in your eyes because I don't know if I believe this. And then they'll meet you and then they'll make the investment. But it's still that touch point that people still want to get that in order to move forward. So it, it, has the mind fully gone that way? I'm not 100% sure everybody has, but it's slowly going to that direction. So Okay, Jeff. What's up, buddy? Welcome back to the show. Ravi, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, I mean, Jeff, I'm always uh, like, you know, taken back by how generous you are with your time because you're a busy guy. You're you're everywhere. Um, you know, OPN. When I when I when we first came to one of your events, I was always blown away by the the theatrics of what you built. Because you know, we're you know, I I, I first uh, you know we first met at City Hall. You know, you first you know you got City Hall's a venue. Uh, and not just one or two times, like you had a recurring theme of running the startup event at, at uh, City Hall. And what I really appreciate about that is the, the theater of it, because it, it helped, especially early stage companies that you serve, always feel like so important. Uh, like, you know, you build this whole grandeur stage about it. And, you know, that's kind of what we try to do with our podcast, our initial set too. kind of. So I kind of say the mentality of it. Uh, but you no, know, now with COVID, like, you know, it's really hard to do that. You know, I, I know I've seen you do a lot of OPN events. You know, the grandeur is gone where people are not interconnecting anymore. Uh, I really want to see, you know, your mindset of, you know, how you're continuing to generate uh, value for early stage companies and how that's how that environment looks like. So um, what's up, man? How, how's COVID been and how's uh, how's the startup life? Um, you know, what are you seeing? Well, again, appreciate it, and, and the the comments and the thoughts are uh, uh, they're bang on. And we when we started everything, we wanted to really make sure that our focus was around the startup. So we didn't um, when we worked with the city, Toronto uh, City Hall, we loved the venue because it was so big, and it just allowed people to feel uh, that they were part of something big, and that they were one day going to be on that stage or they were going to be able to pitch. And what was really kind of um, cool about it was one outside of obviously the city being really driven to support us, but it was the fact that um, the startups, uh, they got to be everywhere and we didn't bring in big businesses. It wasn't about them. So we just decided like, you know, in order to make them feel that they're number one, we're going to put them everywhere. So they had their own boost. They had uh, on the stage, they were that the, the key part to all of this. And that's what made it a lot of fun and, and um, made it interactive for the startups and we let the businesses kind of float around and try to connect with them and you know when COVID um, eventually kind of hit we ran our last um, event we uh, we ended up canceling our live pitch event at City Hall we ran our skip the line event and then I believe it was literally three days later COVID shut everything else down so we couldn't run City Hall so that was our last live event, last live event. We shut it, shut it, stopped all of those from that side. And what was great is that obviously um, due to the circumstance, not so great, but due to the rotation or change that occurred from it was that we kind of had to figure out how do we still showcase and give the same value to the startups that we always were, but how do we change it so that we can expand and grow what we've already built? And the great thing that came out of that was that we kind of put our heads together, started to figure out where, where are we doing right now? What can we do better? And then what can we be in a year from now, regardless of where COVID brings us? And that's what we started to really build on. And literally that week and the week before, we had sat down at Yspace with a group of people and started doing a strategy planning. So we had all these people in a room trying to figure out, okay, what do we want to do? Where do we want to go? And we were really strap planning, like figuring this out. So all of these things all happened at the same time. So it was kind of uh, serendipitous to us kind of figuring out where we wanted to go. And COVID kind of was driving that. So fast forward, I guess, uh, a year. Uh, the great things that have come out of it is that we took a platform that was, you know, maybe 70, 80% Canadian and we globalized it. So now we're actually, we took all the deal flow that we were working with startups like all these companies were coming to us all over the world, but we couldn't do anything with them. So now we decided, well, that doesn't make any sense. Let's open that up. So we did. So now we still see about two, 300 companies a month. 
and we net them down to the best 10. We still run Skip the Line, which was our main event with investors, but we kind of changed it around a lot. We said, well, let's just say we're never gonna run a live event again in person. We're gonna do everything online. What do we want out of this? What's the best thing for everybody? And we said, let's just build great content. Let's just make this all about supporting and driving the startups. And then let's come up with something that will allow us to engage deeper with the investors. That's going to still benefit the startups. And then how can we pull all this together in a nice little package and get this moving forward quickly? So we, uh, we spent the better part of the, the first couple of weeks. And I'll probably say the reason being is that the scare factor set in. And we went from like this crazy amount of busy time to all of a sudden it just dropped off. And we were like, what's going on here? Is this uh, email on? Is this <laughs> phone working? We just, something wasn't right. And uh, that was because everybody was spooked. They didn't know what to do. And we took that time, planned, figured out, and we came up with a, a new model and structure. And uh, it's been awesome. So we wait, found a way to tie in all the global companies into what we're doing. Uh, we now are, are pitch series, which is now constructed under Skip the Line. So our City Hall event, which was the major event, would now actually be a subset of Skip the Line. So Skip the Line is now the major event, and it's all around investors and startups. So we have a program that we created, which is um, five consultations and two pitch events. So we take the two, 300 companies a month, we work with, um, net them down to the best 10, those 10 companies then go through the program over the month, month and a half, two months, and we work with them. And the companies could be anywhere from three years we've been working with them to two months. And we work with them to get them pitch ready. Once they're ready to go, they pitch at our first event called Pitch It, which is broken over two days. And then from there, at the end of the two days, they get feedback from our LPs. Three of our LPs sit on the panel and give feedback. And then they give us their top five rankings of the 10 companies. And then those companies, the top five, we then take the ones that had the least amount of votes, top the bottom two, they actually get put back into the funnel and we work with them at the next event or when they're ready to go. And the eight companies pitch at Skip the Line. So that actually is happening tomorrow. And we are globally set up. So we have three Canadian and five global investment community members uh, that are vetting deal flow. Seven minute pitch, 10 minutes of Q&A. And then the crowd is made up of 50 plus global investors. So now we've been able to bring global investors to the stage so they can pick up companies. So now we've made it even more of a value. And so that's how we structured that change. And then we created a podcast in March where we interview uh, angel VCs globally. So in that, I guess it's been about a year now since I started in March, I've interviewed over 70 investors, learned a ton built a ton of relationships out of it, which was really cool because I've never been a person over person. And all of a sudden, man, I'm like, I had no idea. You're cool. This is amazing. So really got a lot out of it. And we learned more about what investors were looking for. And now we tied that into the event. So now these investors are coming to pull deal flow. So that's how we've been increasing our investor touch points into our event. And then from there, our fund, we invest in one to four of those companies. So it's been a nice, great little pivot to really bring more value to the startups. Amazing. I mean, amazing. So uh, I've been following this journey as well, right? Now we skip the line and these pitches. So, you know, three, 400 companies a month coming in, uh, coming in through this pipeline globally, right? What does that look like? Like, uh, do you focus on any, uh, any particular, I know you're, you, you know, from last week, it looks like you're agnostic to industry, but have you, have that changed? Are you, are you focused on any particular industry, particular types of companies? For sure. So what we've done is um, we've built a, the brand around the fund. So the supporters fund focuses strictly on investing in deep tech, retail and fintech. Those are the three areas we focus on, which happen to be the three areas of my background. So we went from this large agnostic view of the world and investing in any great company we thought were great. And over time, we started to say, well, man, we really need to hyper focus. And the focus isn't because we don't want to invest in everybody. It's because time, you only have so much time to focus on certain elements. So we thought, okay, let's focus on the things that we can really dive into quickly and bring a lot of value in. So that's where we started to hyper-focus our fund in. And we thought the thesis really fit to what 
our backgrounds were and what we knew. So that's where we focused it on. And then what we did is we went out and got industry experts to line up behind each one of those buckets. So that will bring a real value back to our investors. So that's how we did the supporters fund. And then on the OPN side, which is the umbrella of all of this, it's still agnostic. It's open to all companies because we want to be deal flow for all um, angel and VCs globally to come in and pull deal flow. So in order to do that, you can't be just focused on one area. You let it open to all. So we still do that, which is cool. But now we're like, oh, I want to invest in them, but I can't. I can't. It doesn't fit into our thesis. So, But we still can give them FaceTime and give them the value that they deserve for being a great company. So it's been really cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I, I like the idea of niching and like and uh, focusing down because I, I believe like the inf the entire uh, industry is kind of changing this way. We're more focused and more growth orientated, right? Where the investors are now taking more of a direct approach uh, into this, right? Um, you know, I've been calling this like um, like for lack of a better phrase, like growth engines. Like ClearBank is like probably the most forward thinking of this. Like most. Uh, most, uh, you know, top of mind, but even like Georgian Ventures uh, recently changed into a fintech company, right? We were seeing like investors who put money to companies, not just passively investing anymore, but taking an active role in leading companies to their growth uh, through, uh, you know, through connections and through networking to actually taking a growth role. Social capital, you know, Chamath has, uh, you know, taken a very, uh, you know, aggressive stance towards the companies they invest into, right? So uh, when it, when this, this focus is, uh, you know, utilize, focusing on the companies uh, that, you know, uh, with a background in the industry and uh, the type that uh, you're, you're most familiar with and have a background in, you know, what does that look like um, from a back-end perspective, right? Um, do you, you know, are you still capital playing or are you, like, getting more involved with these companies? Because I know you have, a, you know, you're very relationship-focused. For sure. Um, and great, great, great questions. So what we did was we we actually took all of the investors that we were bringing into the fund and we created a program where we actually have um, an investor tie into the startup. So we're trying to build that out because as you continue to build up your portfolio and still keep investing in companies, they become uh, further apart from you because they're growing at a different stage. And I always like to say that, you know, right now we're going to be working really closely together. But in two years, you shouldn't know me because you're going to be growing past the stage that we're at. So you'll mm -hmm. be at a series A. We're not at that stage anymore. So you need to be bringing in new people on your advisory committee board, on your on your boards, everything. You should be working to get rid of me. Mm -hmm. So you don't want us in your um your board or your director side, because at the end of the day, you're growing your business, which means that you're going to be bringing in growth experts that are going to come up at all these different layers of investment. So we're past pre-seed and seed. That's us at series A. We're just starting to weed our way out now. So we want you to find those rock stars. So uh, I think when it, when it comes down to what are the great things that we can keep working with our startups, we, we provide them with all of our angel investors. Our target is that by the end of April, we'll have 50, uh, angel VCs that are tied into the fund, which will allow us to deploy a lot of that skills, knowledge, and excitement from an investor standpoint into the companies we work with, which we're already doing now, but now at a larger scale. Um, and then that way, when we start to bring in a larger dollars, we have a really strong base of uh, uh, talent, invested talent, they can really go out and work with the startups we invest in. So that's the, a way that we wanted to be from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, you build that strong base and then you go from there upwards. Yeah. I mean, you, you alluded to the fact that, um, you know, some of the companies you deal with, you know, you've known for like three years and you've kept ties with them, right? Especially for early stage companies, you know, uh, you know we, we hear about this a lot because, you know, Series A and above, companies have financials. You have, you could, there's a way to actually vet them properly. You know, like you can see what the revenue streams are, what their business has been. You can go into more of the qualitative data. Right, uh, qu uh, right, and uh, quantitative data. So, uh, before that, companies really exist on paper uh, and the story that the comp uh, the founders tell, right? Um, you know how you know how they communicate, who they're connected to, how they're maneuvering, how they, how they work is very quantitative, right? How do you um, you know how do you vet companies? What, what what's your model or metric? And I think we, we covered this on, on the previous episode as well. Uh, has that changed uh, in the in a post COVID world? Um, you know, you don't get to see companies anymore. You don't get to see them eye to eye anymore. It's all like Zoom calls and things like that. How do you, you know, how do you, how do you vet companies? For sure. So 
even in the past, we were able to vet companies without meeting them face to face. So we do, and we have been working on and creating uh, our own system. So we have uh, built our own CRM. We've, uh, we do analysis around the startups. So we have, I'm going to say, we'll define it over the next little while to be what the exact is, but it's like a 30 point system. So what we do is we plug in all the metrics that we need across the board into our, our system. And then that comes back. And again, this doesn't have to be a FaceTime or a conversation. It just has to be enough metrics to come back at that early stage to say, do they have traction? How big is their team? Do they have debt? Uh, what's their burn rates? There's a lot of data that we don't believe we need or it doesn't exist, which does exist, that we can utilize to give us a story. Mm-hmm. And it's a data story. It's not a, um, how great your pitch was or if you're good looking. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It's just data. Mm-hmm. So we, can't, we don't want to and we never will discriminate against anybody because we don't know who you are. What we know is the data. And that information is going to give us a story. And then that's a story that's going to trigger us to say, wow, we like what they're doing. And then we can analyze that against the categories that they're going into and say, hey, is this scalable? Is this something that can really expand and grow? And then that's a couple of calls, Zoom calls, whatever that might be. And that's where the excitement just keeps building. So uh, for us, there, everybody says there isn't data. There is data. There's a lot of data. Um, and if they do it right and a startup does it right, they will book a lot of data. They'll keep track of it. We have startups that we work with um, and invest in. And it's, uh, they're very meticulous. You know, I, I, I use the word, I like a psychotic invest, uh, startup founder. And that's because they just know everything about everything that's going on in their space. They know every company, what they sold for, what they bought for, how big the market is, what they're doing. They're just crazy about everything that's going on. But they also understand how data works. Mm-hmm. So they have information. They're telling you that they've got closed sales. They've got soft commits. They've got all of these things, moving parts, but they're keeping track of it. And that's what allows us to be more functional and to be able to operate in the world that we're in. Hmm. So, I mean, that's that's really interesting because, um, you know, we're, we're told that early stage companies are, you know, re- mostly unquantifiable because they're still like developing their financials for things. But I think, uh, you know, you touch on a key point that there are data points that you can capture, right? Um, so, so going back to this, like, you know, what does that look like? Can you give us a case or an example, whether by naming a company or not, like, uh, you know, what does, uh, you know, what, what'd you look for, what made them exciting, uh, and how, like how that journey went for, uh, to, for an investment? For sure. Uh, I, I think the one that would come to mind that probably stands out the most was, um, they're, a, a company out of, uh, the Durham region. Mm. Uh, they came to one of our events like you guys. And they were awesome, two founders, and, and they came up and they were uh, all excited to, to chat and start pitching their business. And as soon as I heard their business, I was like, wow, it's amazing. And so these data points that you can look at, uh, the first thing is, you know, what did they do to, to go out and grab your attention? Secondly, you can go to um, its co-founders. So there's two founders driving the business. That carries a lot of extra weight. Uh, and then what was the tech built on? What was the tech stack? How did they operate it? What is the thing doing? Is it unique? Is it different? And they actually came with all of these pieces and their company was fresh and new. They hadn't actually launched the product yet. They were still in development, uh, but it was really about how the founders uh, visualized their business, where they wanted to go. And then the numbers and details that they had on the industry, who their competitors were, how many there were, what they were doing in revenues. And uh, the guys had all this information. They were very um, well oriented and detailed around the space. So it was an easy understanding of their business. And then we kept talking and they kept booking time. I went and saw them uh, and eventually it just kept moving into different uh, information that we were able to gather to prove that there was an, uh, a real big opportunity here. So we did, we made uh, an investment. We were the first ones in, uh, into the company. And then from there, they went through our event. They pitched, they closed another group a little bit later um, from there. And then they spent the next six to eight months building their company. And we worked with them, kept talking, kept working with them. We helped them close their first deal. Uh, they kept continue to work and build. And then six to eight months later, they raised, they went out and raised more money. They said, hey, we're doing really well. We're gonna raise some more capital. So they did. So they raised uh, just over a, a million dollars. And uh, they spent the next, they've been spending the last six to eight months growing the company. And uh, we were part of that initial investment to help them take off. And then uh, we provisioned that we wanted to be part of that board when they got to the point of building one. 
they built it and and now we we help work with them and they've brought some amazing talent onto their team they've brought some amazing investors onto the team and it's phenomenal to be part of and to watch and see these guys just building this and going quick and moving moving earth on it to make it happen so hmm. pretty exciting that's very really cool. So, um, you know, I really want to get uh, into like some trend analysis uh, with you, right? Like, you know, how things have changed or what you're seeing that are different, right? Um, you know, before I get dive into that, like, you know, anything that stands out for you, like, you know, like, you know, after COVID, like you know, now a year into the pandemic, right? What is uh, the main difference you're seeing? Are you seeing it, there are different types of companies come up or, uh, you know, companies operating completely different? Like, what are the main changes you're seeing in the industry? Well, I think a great great um i guess byproduct that's come out of the pandemic is that there's been a lot of uh startup change so some companies had to fail in order to move forward and what i mean by that is that it didn't work with what they were doing and that was their uh, aha moment that i need to change or pivot or sink my business and move on so there was a lot of that that occurred and then what came out of this was fresh perspective so now I'm working in a whole different environment and a lot more ideas started to come out and a lot of people had more time. So just like in 2007 in the financial crisis, people were laid off, people had time, people decided that they had a passion, they wanted to go after it. So, or it was just people working on the side doing things and they decided to make it bigger and go raise funds and realize that there was a, a bigger problem and more need. So there's been a ton of uh, companies that have come out of this and it's not all just COVID focused. Not everybody's building uh, face masks and, and uh, mm. things like that. But there are obviously a, a lot of changes. But what it also did was it punched holes in the way systems were working. So now obviously you had more remote workers. Um, when I started my company 15 years ago, I made it remote. So I've been remote for 15 years. So I didn't even notice a difference. So to me, I was just working the way I was working. But that was new to a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people didn't want to work that way. So now you had to make those pivots and changes to accommodate it, which creates more ideas, uh, faster movement to solve bigger problems. And more, uh, more big companies were trying to solve these problems, which means that they were willing to spend money to solve them either internally or pay externally for someone to go in and fix them. And then you start to build up more startups that come out of it. So you know now you can see that you'll probably continue to build trends in different areas that uh, will help businesses sustain themselves. Will it be like this forever? No, but now maybe it goes back to 50-50. So 50% of people will work on-site now versus off-site, whereas before it was 95% on-site. Uh, so there's, there's going to be pivots, there's going to be changes, but now you've adapted to work with that type of workforce. Uh, people are going to want more spare time, more free time. So how do you accomplish things faster and more convenient? Um, education, it might have been tough for parents to not be able to ditch their kids for eight hours and then have to hang out with them all day. But now they found a way to make it uh, valuable for the for the kid. They don't have to commute. They learn quicker, uh, better attention um, opportunities. And now the parents are getting to be spend more time with their kids. So they're happy. So there's kind of this really great cycle of the way the world had to change to accommodate. How much of that's going to stay going forward? That's what you got to predict. But I can say that the ed, ed tech space uh, is really changed. Uh, dramatically on how and what we'll be educating ourselves in the future. Uh, I think fintech supporting all of these has been a big change. Uh, there's a lot of commerce that's coming out of how these uh, people will be interacting on a daily basis in ed tech, uh, health tech as well. Uh, you started to find that there was a lot of holes, right? People are lining up to get COVID testing or people were having issues getting uh, x-rays or scans. So a lot of process had to be changed in order to clean up how somebody interacts in a hospital. Well, I guarantee it sped things up because now they found ways to move people through quicker and faster in front of doctors than they ever had before uh, because they had to protect themselves more now, but also had less waiting room. So now you found ways to wait in your car or to be on time. So you're not seeing your doctor at five o'clock and he shows up at eight. Mm -hmm. So now there's, you know, that change. So that was probably a massive change for people. Uh, because they got tired of waiting three hours in an office. So a lot of these things started to improve themselves and it's going to come from a startup trying to figure out how to solve it and, and get their way in. So I think there's been a, a lot of um, areas that got uh, updated because of COVID, but then there's also areas that probably don't get touched very often. And now they've started to get expanded on, which is like areas in construction, 
landscaping and other ways for people to start um, hand, hands-free fixing things. So there's companies that will do your roofing and they'll do satellite imagery on your roof so they can give you a quote without ever having to come to your door. So you're speeding up a way to interact to get something done. Mm. And I think a lot of that is how you get people to start analyzing convenience and what things can I get rid of so that I'm not driving all over the place because my time's better served uh, me stepping out my front door at five o'clock instead of me driving for two hours. So a lot of it's all about convenience and how you build that into your, your lifestyle. And I think we've learned it from being at home for the last year. Yeah, I think I think you touched on a great point because one of the things uh, we've been I've been following is that since uh, since the 1960s, the actual amount um, per capita uh, uh, of innovators of, of startups has actually been going down, even though we hear more of them. Mostly because cost of living has gone up, it increased the friction. You know, if you're uh, you know 29 years old, 32 years old, and you want to quit your job to start a startup, but you have a family and a mortgage, you know, now it's more, way more life is way more expensive. The costs are uh, much higher. You're less likely to do it. Uh, but what the pandemic has already done is is changed is changed the barrier to entry, right? Because now you know you no longer need an, need an office to operate off. You can work from your home, right? Meet people remotely. You don't longer driving across town to make meetings. You can have three back to back meetings lined up, right? And you you can do it across the world, right? Um, Scott Galloway was talking about when he launched his uh, agency, first launched his agency, right? He used to you know. One third, like he he had a client in Germany, um, you know, it was a big big manufacturer in Germany, and like every other every week he was flying there uh, to have an in person meeting, right? And uh, and that was a huge barrier to entry, uh, but you know, again, recovered from his costs, but it's part of the part of the part of the cost, and it prevented him from having many international clients. But now that barrier of entry can be removed, remo- uh, like reduced, so you can charge less and have a, potentially more clients and scale better, right? So. The barriers to entry has changed. So what I, what I'm what I what I what I what I'm predicting to see is that more startups per capita are actually launching. Two, we a lot of people were on uh, you know where there's a lot of mass employment that happened. And generally, anytime this kind of black swan events happen, people get people get laid off. Most of them just go out and start companies, start their own employment services, right? So, and I, I think that I think we've seen a lot of that. So I think we're now at the tail end of that, seeing all these like uh, you know post COVID uh, changes. Uh, you know, companies, new, new emerging companies come up. And, and three, the infrastructure, right? Before, it used to be location, location, location. 2017, we saw, what, 20, uh, the record number of 2,700 startups formed in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, right? Um, Kitch- uh, sorry, Kitchener-Toronto corridor area, 2,700 startups. Uh, put that in comparison, in all of India in 2017, only 50,000 startups came up. Right, which is the world the second the world's world's second large population, but now the infrastructure cost is gone because now you no longer have to be close to a population. You don't have to be close to other talent. You don't have to be close to incubators or grant programs. You can now you know be sitting in a, in a remote town somewhere as long as you have internet. Connect to someone in Singapore, start a company, and, and launch and utilize you know multinational support mechanisms to to go forward. Um, I think what we're seeing is a digitization of the innovation industry, right? Where all the support structures are going digital. And just like yourself, now you have the capacity to handle international clients, more and more accelerators, incubators, and support structures are going digital and being able to accept like a wider array of things, right? And so, uh, you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the thoughts about this is the digitization of it. What is the platform layer going to be? That uh, startups are going to, you know, innovation industries and run off of, right? We've seen these innovation brokerages uh, that happen that, that have been historically been there, you know, that have dri- been a driving force for open innovation. But it's always been behind the scenes, kind of backdoor kind of areas. You know, startups are always been up to their, you know, up to them to kind of find services and and figure out, uh, you know, how to build up and get to the point of interest. But do you see that there's ever going to be a point where this it's going to get proactive? Where people, are, you know, people are going to see like very early stage companies and be like, "Hey, cool, let's get like ten thousand of these, put them on a platform, and that platform use them analytics and, uh, to figure out, you know, how to better to connect them, find co-founders, find people, like you know, find resources, right? How can intelligence be deployed to help startups? It's something that I, I think about a lot, right? Now that things are being digitized, how can we deploy more intelligence towards companies? And is anyone doing this? It's interesting that. Um, to one point to what you were saying there, that the biggest change that's occurred right now is, as you mentioned, there's layoffs and high unemployment, so people start looking for jobs. But I think the biggest shift is the mind shift that's occurred. A lot of people's minds are, you know, they're they're not really 
um, into change. You know, people believe and say they're in a change, but it's proven that change is the most stressful thing for anyone. So you have a whole world that's had to shift. And, you know, we've been in digital for 20 years, but it isn't the same impact until COVID. You know, credit cards weren't heavily used until really COVID. Like you were at maybe 20, 30% of people are still using cash in North America or more in some areas, but that has now really changed. People are like COVID money, ooh. So now it's down to probably 5% of people using cash. So it's really been a mindset change that's forced people to say, hey, I don't need to go to a store, I can go online, or I don't need to do those things. I don't need to go to the office to be able to finish my job. So that mind had, you had to change a lot of how you looked at something. So now being able to move that forward and continue to move that forward, the mind has to be able to keep adapting to this change and how the world is changing all at one time. So to go into your concept of how can we use AI and technology to really benefit the growth of a startup and help them find founders and everything else, there are companies that are trying to tackle this, but because the mind isn't able to see that happening, oh, I need to interview somebody live or I need to do certain things, it hasn't got to that stage where I can actually accept this yet. So just like you were mentioning earlier on investing, oh, I need to see that person. That's still pretty common. I'm sure there's still a lot of investors out there that are saying, ah, you know what, Ravi, I'm interested to invest in you, but we got to meet and shake hands. I got to look in your eyes because I don't know if I believe this. And then they'll meet you and then they'll make the investment. But it's still that touch point that people still want to get that in order to move forward. So it, it, has the mind fully gone that way? I'm not 100% sure everybody has, but it's slowly going to that direction. So the same thing around how do we help startups get to that facilitation of finding the right resources, being all part of one system. It's a lot of stuff in one system to manage. I think you'd get lost and maybe get buried in it and maybe it just wouldn't solve the problems you do. But there are individual systems coming out that are tackling these things along the way, which I think eventually one day will become one system for sure. Uh, but right now I do feel that there's a lot of individual systems coming out to tackle that resourcing problem globally, to tackle fintech, uh, financial resource allocation, whatever it might be. But they're doing it as a one-off before they build out the big big kahuna, I guess, of a system. Mm, gotcha. But it's um, going to happen, I'm sure. We'll yeah. get used to it and we'll demand it. We'll say, hey, wait, shouldn't the government be able to do all of these things? And then maybe that's the same direction, right? Is you put the demand on someone and eventually they'll go there. Uh, but then it's up to the user to be able to get their mind around being able to do everything in one spot. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, uh, we, we've been, uh, uh, me and Henry have been going through like all these reports, trying to just figure out um, what's going on in the industry, like what are the big changes and stuff, right? And the government of Canada uh, and, and all the provinces have realized post-pandemic, all the economic recovery is going to come from not just small companies, not small companies, but new companies, particularly startups and uh, new companies that come out of this. Companies that understand the new environment we live in and build for the build for the solutions that we're doing, right? And one of the the, the categoric um, uh, difficulties that these companies are facing is that Canada's uh, innovation industry is is actually gotten a lot more sophisticated in the last past ten years. You know, we have the the VCs in place now. We have actual venture capital companies, and we have uh, we have we have capital. The problem is they don't have a deal flow because early stage companies you know we have we have accelerators incubators there's a hundred and i think there's about 194 incubators and accelerators across canada both privately university and government funded right so right. this infrastructure is there but uh the main missing piece is uh, is smart money like the strategic investor the angels who can come in and who have done done it before right who can who can invest not in uh the the in the inv investing companies that are the investment but as in buying the future the company's trying to build right majority of the wealth in canada is still made in traditional industries so a lot of investors when they come in they see things as okay where is my return going to be how much percentage of this do i really own they're looking at a, at a very antiquated model they're looking at from like you know from like real estate models or things like that right whereas with startups especially early stage investing it requires a lot of more uh, infinite thinking where you're buying the future the startups trying to build and you need to believe in that. And generally, the best investors are those people who've done it themselves before, right? So one of the missing pieces and, and, and it's one of the things that uh, and you and what you're doing is so important is you're filling the strategic gap. The, the biggest gap in our economy, uh, in the innovation economy in Canada, is that the strategic money that's coming in. 
Are you seeing more support coming your way or to people like, you know, people in, in, in at your level investments uh, from government or from other industries or, you know, is there support structures being put, provided your way? I would say that from a government standpoint, you're right. They have taken a lot of measures to support the startup community. I think that they see that it's imperative that uh, it's 96, 97% of Canadian economy is small you know, five to 10 people, companies, and they drive the economy. So you need to support that base. Uh, you need to make sure that it's it's growing and getting the, the value it needs from uh, revenues all the way through to resourcing, because that's where they make their tax dollars in order to, to run and build an efficient government. So they are doing a lot of things uh, from OCE and other uh, government funded groups that are making investments and follow on investments matching so there is a lot of that and it's it's up and down right and the tax side of it's different in alberta than it is here from a tax matching perspective on investors and investments so that you're not getting taxed on the dollars so i think in ontario hopefully they'll start to see a different way to package how investors put money in so if they do put fifty thousand into a company that they're not being taxed on it the whole amount maybe it's a half the amount so that there's some benefit from it and again, the reason is, is that you're supporting an economy, a new economy to help build it up. So a lot of those things are going to start coming out in the in the future, I suspect, especially with um, coming out of COVID to keep things moving and not go into a deep recession. Uh, you'll see a lot of support from an investor angel side and what we're doing. Uh, yeah, we, we've gone through our cycle as well, right? We went from the people coming into our fund and, and I was talking about this today that, you know, we had to build a brand, build some time, build up some investments, uh, show some growth, show some opportunities. Uh, we have one company going RTO. So all these things have built stability into what we're doing, which you go through a cycle, like your first round of investors, friends and family. Your second round are usually close advisors and investors that really like what you're doing. And now the third round, you're getting people that don't know you but seen what you've done over three years or four, five years. So now those are the types of people coming in. So the support mechanism is really based off the opportunity that you're creating and the types of people you're interfacing and networking with. So just as we've gone through these cycles, a startup goes through the exact same ones. There's not really much of a difference. So, you know, we, we implore uh, our startups and everybody else, get out, network, meet people, talk with them, learn what they're looking to do, what they want to solve, how they solve problems, how they tie in your business. And governments are doing the same thing, but from a whole different perspective and level. They're doing it with the angel groups. And they're saying, hey, we'll give you some money so that you can go out and deploy it. Or we're going to go out and give money to these groups, and they're going to get that out into the economy. So they're, everybody's doing their own part to help support that resourcing base to ensure people are employed. But one of the statistics that we follow and, and we match in is how many jobs are we creating through our fund when we invest in a company? Um, how many countries are they touching in, in that work? Like that to me, data is important and that data really shows the value of what you're trying to build. If we can say that we've invested in 30 companies and it's employed over 280 people, that's amazing. Well, how do we make it 400? Well, maybe we need to put more money in or maybe we help this company grow faster. So there, there's a lot of those elements that tie into it. But I think in general, uh, in the last year, we've seen a, a lot more focus on helping startups survive and not just in Canada. Our biggest markets are India, um, US, UK, and Canada for uh, startups that we talk with. And we've engaged with over 70 different countries from startups. And those are the ones that we speak with the most, which happen to be massive uh, centers um, for growth in startups. And like you said, there's 50,000 startups in India. Um, we're on panels and talking with all over India, and it's incredible what they're doing and where they're, they're going with their economy with startups and the support they get. Um, we've talked with great economies and startups in Chile, uh, probably one of the best centers for, for startups. Uh, they pay you to go there and work for six months to build your company, $50,000. Amazing. So they really are trying to build a base. They don't have the investor support that they want yet, but they've got a government that's really driving the support to, to build out their economy. Um, you know, Mexico, Chihuahua, Mexico, another great center. They've had some great startups that have gone through their system and sold. Uh, all over the world. And these are all becoming epicenters because they're seeing the value in bringing money in to help support and drive out these early stage companies. Sorry. Yeah. So, 
I think that's really interesting because uh, internationally, I was uh, uh, things are a little different, right? Like, um, I, I was on a panel. Um, I was invited to talk on a panel by the Canadian Securities Exchange, and uh, you know they're uh, they're really uh, you know trying to push out a message that uh, the, it's actually um, a lot easier to list in Canada uh, than we previously thought people think about you know, whether it be IPO or even get secondary or tertiary markets to gain capital through the private private sector. And uh, you know this topic came up, and uh, you know what I kind of described is that in Canada, and what we really have is like like um, the, the the innovation landscape is literally a swarm of bees, which is all these tiny tiny companies that have a difficulty coming up, then like a big margin margin between that and like uh, actual startups that we are more verified and, and actually get to the public, and those are the companies that get to the VC. So when we talk about deal flows not going upwards, it's because these swarm of bees are you know very, uh, they're not getting to that point, climbing up there, and uh, to that point. Um, you know, uh, I made this point that really stuck. It was like uh, in, uh, America is known to uh, export uh, companies, right? Where Canada is known to export innovators, right? Really, like uh, we're IP generating uh, per capita, we're an IP generating uh, nation, right? Like a lot of inventions come out of here, but they don't necessarily turn into into large scale companies. But um, you know, when it comes to like support and and, and infrastructure, one of the interesting things that uh, is coming up now is. Uh, these uh these uh the rise of retail uh, like retail investments into private companies so there's uh, there's a company called front founder out of vancouver that's doing this really well right there's a, there's a few other brokerages that are coming up it's it's more of a, a model known in in america but uh what do you think about you know retail investors being able to come into uh coming in and supporting private companies startups right from uh, startups being able to raise like you know $100 $500 from like a thousand companies and uh, the brokerage you know uh, the broker can come in and put up like you know one line in their cap table from a thousand people supporting them. Um, does that help companies? Does that uh, does that um, harm them in the end? Uh, what does that look like from an investor point of view? Well, I, I think that a lot of the time, what uh, you'll see in the investor community and the way government ties into it and how it's supported is that it's almost intrinsic that if you're a startup. And you're, like you said, the bee, little bees that are kind of uh, moving around trying to find their new hives so that they can grow is that a lot of the investors, angel investors in that VC side, they're always looking at, has this company utilized any government funding to grow their business? Have they gone and used SERP, SERP, all these different things? Are they using them to grow their business? And it, which in a way it becomes a crutch. I personally think that you need to look at that as growth money, not support money. So there's kind of two ways of looking at it. I'm going to build something, get my MVP out, test the market, hypothesize, pivot, grow, get money, grow, get money, grow. Use the money for growth money. But a lot of the time we use it as support, 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 and we haven't figured out how to get to that point of growth. And then there's the failures that occur and the government comes in at different stages of matching and they usually match higher up. So those little bees are still circulating around and they're not getting the value they need. So they should be coming up with programs that are allowing for the hypothesis, the NB, the alpha, the beta testing, so that these companies do have a potential to get to the stage of being in uh, angel or VC uh, funded. And there's about the 5,000, you talked about the 2,500 companies, like globally across Canada, there's about 5,000 companies that get started in that, in that sector that only maybe 300 get funded a year. So that's a pretty small number of 5,000 companies. And that's because, and those ones are at that stage where they can get funded, but the lower side has a tougher go, right? And I think where Canada came into this whole market and really, um, as you mentioned, innovators, where this came in and why we became such a strong society in that, um, and I'm gonna mess up the year, I think it was 67 or something along those lines. Uh, Canada went and formed this um, committee uh, to write a document around where Canada need to be in the next 30, 40 years. And what they went back and they said, hey, look, we're not going to be manufacturing. We're not going to be labor. We're going to be innovators and resources. You're going to hire Canadians to come in, bring them all over the world, and we're going to be the brain power. So we're going to build a society that's built off brains. Wow. And that's really what the whole thing was written about and what they delivered. And oddly enough, 50 years later, like you said, we're innovators. So the Canadian society was built to educate and grow consultants, to grow people that would just be consultants and be able to help support the growth of industry and companies around the world. 
So that's kind of where we, the, the company or the, the country focus its brains. So now you have a million little bees that are all super smart innovators, but they don't have that same capacity to figure out how do we turn these into businesses. And now you've got a big push in that space. And I think that uh, there isn't enough dollars at the base to support it. 100% there's not. And there's a lot of dollars at the very top of the funnel. But the difference is, is that they're only getting choices of, say, three to 30 to 40 companies a year that they can all invest in because that's Series D and E. There isn't as much Canadian dollars going in. There's a lot, but there's not many companies. So how do you open the funnel up and bring more of those dollars down and bring more companies in so that there's more selection and more companies can move faster? And I think that's a, a government role by helping more companies uh, beta test, alpha test before they get to the, that angel side of things so that they have a potential to survive. And that's like investments of ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 that would, even if it's doing it, deployed it through universities and colleges, through those incubators and accelerators, I think that's where you're going to see a big change in the way the economy uh, focuses around startups getting further along the funnel. Yeah, I like that. I like, I like how you position that because... Um, you know, we, we, we sometimes turn to society or government and be like, oh, why isn't this there? Why isn't that there? But generally, like how governments work is over those kind of tailwind kind of periods, right? Like 40, 50 year periods where they put infrastructure and policies in a place that kind of builds up over time. And it's really invisible until the final result. And like, oh, you look around like, whoa, this all this happened. Right. Uh, yeah. That's that's really interesting. You know, um, I, would, I would love to get some predictions from you. You know, what does. Uh, Canada, the innovation industry look like in 10, 20 years? Where are we heading towards? Um, and you can talk what, you know, particular technology-wise or infrastructure-wise, uh, what would you like to see or what, what, what would you think would happen? It's an interesting question. I wish I had a, uh, I guess, a crystal ball to, to be able to decide where and how and what it's going to look like in that time period. But I, I think that, like any culture, we, we learn a lot from uh, the south and from the north and everybody around us and I, I do think that the u.s drives a lot of it and now china is a big player in this as well their innovation side of things is moving at a rapid speed and they are really taking out the stops around how innovation looks and works um, and that i think is where society is kind of going towards is the competition to keep up with the amount of change that's going on and how fast it's moving so I think that if we're to predict where we want to go, um, you know, we probably will be in self-piloted flying machines in the next 20 years. Uh, people will be moving quicker, faster to get around. You know, the U.S. is already coming up with bullet trains that will shoot you across the U U U.S. in a couple hours or an hour from one side to the other. So I, I think that we're, we're always moving in advancements of how do we get ourselves quicker to one spot to the other? How do we accomplish something with the least amount of touch points? So I think if you're looking at innovation, like there was a video floating around that showed like the home in 1970s and they were doing this prediction of what home should look like. And they were bang on because all the stuff they were talking about is like, I walk in the room, the light goes on. Well, they couldn't do that in the 70s, but today that's exactly what's happening. So it's kind of an easy way to predict that we're going to try to find ways to reduce the amount of labor and the amount of touch points to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of us having to do less for more. So what industries can you change that would reduce that? And, you know, everybody's fear of AI coming in would change and ruin the world. But AI has actually just allowed more people to be smarter and less people to do the labor and being able to allocate different things. Like if you look at Loblaws, when they came in with self-service checkouts, people were like, well, you're losing jobs. And or when they came in with um, pickup uh, to pick up your groceries. And people were like, well, you're losing jobs again. But what they didn't realize is that it actually increased jobs because they had to move people around to now go pick groceries. They didn't have that job before because they don't have a machine to go out and pick groceries. So they, they, you shift uh, resourcing around to order to accommodate other efficiencies. And the efficiencies are built for the customer. So yes, we've made it easier for that customer to pick up their groceries. But internally, we had to do a lot more to continue to be efficient and be able to bring down our costs so that we can still make money while building efficiencies for the customer. So I think a lot of the predictions are gonna be focused around how do we continue to bring efficiencies in while ensuring convenience is built uh, at a hyper speed. So if that goes to education and allowing you to learn quicker, faster, more effectively, so that instead of you getting to university at the age of 22, finishing it, 
you'll actually be done by 17 or 16 because really we should be smart enough now that we could educate you fast enough on a system that you don't have to go through the basic rudimentary stuff that we teach somebody in grades one to eight. We should be able to teach you grade one to 13 in your first six years of grade school. Why? Because your brain is at the highest peak of development and we're treating it like it's at the slowest level of development. So how do we increase that? So how do we start looking at things that we're taking for granted that haven't fixed or changed yet? So if we built a bridge in a week, how come China can do it in three hours? Well, they're looking at efficiency. We haven't started to even touch that yet. So a lot of, I think, predictions have to be built on what things can I change um, fundamentally to go to the fastest output for the best product. And if that goes from education all the way to how you build a, a TV to how the internet works on speeds, I think a lot of that's going to change by being trying to figure out how to take out the middleman, if you will, or the middle ground of slowness to uh, supersede what we're not looking at. Hmm. I love that. You know, uh, towards, uh, towards uh, more, more and more efficiency. Uh, I think that's one of the best answers I've seen to that question. It's, like, it's kind of a throw, throw out uh, kind of question I ask because it's so open-ended. But uh, I, liked, I liked how you positioned that answer. Um, another thing, uh, you know, I know we're running low on time here, but um, space as a platform, as an industry, right? Canada has a 2030 plan. Uh, there's an a agency that said that it's being deployed uh, in Canada that's uh, with an operational timeline of 2030. Uh, Canada has a huge industry in oil and gas and, man and manufacturing, and they want to deploy uh, Canada's infrastructure of, um, uh, of uh, a legal system and uh, you know, cl a claiming system towards space, a.k.a. asteroid mining especially, right? Especially the claiming of things in, 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 on asteroids. So Canada has, this uh, Canada has this plan that it doesn't think that it'll be the launch center for, for every anything. You know, U.S. is still the global leader of that, and there's a bunch of uh, countries now, now getting the capability to have launch centers. But really, um, you know, it's country-specific to figure out where you want to uh, have the ownership rights deployed under. You can choose the country you want to deploy under. And Canada wants to be the friendliest nation that uh, wants to support private enterprise in space. Are you tracking space or anything like that? Is it a private interest of yours? It's, I'm fascinated by it personally, right? And what are your what are your thoughts on the industry? It's crazy. Like I would say that the the country that's focused the most uh, countries that are focused the most on really driving innovation is in space is India and Israel. Uh, there is a, a you know there India puts out more engineers than any other country. And Israel focuses a lot. I've seen a lot of startups in Israel that focus on the space technology because of the growth of their armies and everything else that's going on. They're really innovative. Um, and then, of course, you've got North Americans from Teslas and all of those that are putting in a lot of focus and uh, the big money that's going into generating uh, how and what they're going to be doing on in this frontier. I think like anything, if you can find something that's untouched, it's going to be the next massive frontier. And right now, space is the most untouched frontier that you can drive into that is going to bring you opportunity and value. And there is so much money going into it. Uh, there are so many satellites being deployed on a regular basis, daily basis. Uh, there's probably more satellites up there than there are cars down here. Like it's crazy where the data and information is that they're trying to pull out. And I'm kidding, there's not more satellites than there are cars. Uh, but that there is such a massive industry in it. And there's so many things that we're not even looking at and thinking are existing. Um, that they're already doing in space, that they're already doing with satellites, uh, the amount of data and tracking that they're doing in the satellites that are being operated. There's operators that own one to a thousand satellites and the information that they're able to collect from them. Uh, there is a lot of really cool things that are happening in this space. Um, no pun intended on the space, but th there is a lot happening. And I think that you'll see a lot more come out of it. And because it's so unknown, you can be as creative as possible to solve a mini problem. And there are a lot of US universities coming out with programs where they're willing to give a million dollars for the fix of this problem that they're creating through their NASA programs and other uh, programs that they're running, uh, which is pretty exciting. Man, that's, that's amazing. Uh, that was a great answer. Um, again, like space is such like a such like a frontier. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, like we don't like I don't think we hear enough about what's going on because a lot of back end technologies being built and utilized globally. And I think you're absolutely right 
Um, Bloomberg did a really good um, series, uh, quick takes on uh, the space industry and uh, India is trying, uh, trying to become the leader of like microsatellites and deploying the microsatellites, right? Uh, there's a Kitchener-based company um, uh, called uh, Pager Duty. They just uh, they IPO'd for 1.9 billion dollars uh, in 2019, and uh, they they want to they you know they're the backend database, the backend platform for Netflix and all these major companies, and they want to be the backend uh, platform for space as a platform for all the satellites and all the kind of communications. They're trying to do that, so I think there's a lot of backend uh, backend plays that Canadian companies are doing that we're not going to see that uh, see that until the tailwinds hits. So it's absolutely fascinating, definitely. Oh, massively, massive, De- perfect, huge space. And if you can come up with another area that becomes like the frontier or becomes uh, something that is really uh, unearthed or untouched, then you know that you can spend a lot of time focusing on it. There's a company out of uh, one of the groups you work with out of Montreal phenomenal technology and it connects people through a device all over the world place the device and then you tap into that device and everybody's connected offline no internet just so much cool stuff but they had to build it from scratch and just slowly build on it and get people interested in the tech interested in the solution and what's coming out of it and if you can do that and you've got the time and you've got the resources you can really start to make a movement like bitcoin like anything that is uh, unheard of that is like, this is impossible. This will never happen. Why wouldn't people use this? Today, people's minds are so much more open to opportunity and for trying to dig into something that you possibly couldn't have thought of 20 years ago. And today it is all possible. There's nothing out there that isn't possible. Uh, and you know what? Just go after it. Go after the impossible because that's where you're going to get the most gratification is solving that impossible thing that everybody told you you couldn't do. Yeah. Um, I just want to close off this one last question. You know, I, I love where we're going with this. If you had an infinite supply of money, right, as an investor, what is the prop main? What is the problem or set of problems that you would love to put your money toward to solve? Uh, what are the company? Uh, you know, not the companies, but the problem you would like to see solved. Well, I'm going to give you what popped in my head first because obviously it's unrehearsed thinking here. But the first thing that came into my mind is that in order for uh, the world to continue to grow and populate and be able to survive the next hundred years, there is a there's a climate thing that needs to be climate issue that needs to be resolved and looked at. We have created enough junk and garbage of short term usage of products that if we could focus the time into re-engineering these wasted products into um, fence posts, into infrastructure builds that would allow for us to re-engineer a product that doesn't need to be used anymore. So wood is trees. It's one of the overused, the lungs of the world. So if I had endless amount of dollars, my goal and plan was to buy up thousands and thousands of acres of forest to lock them down so they could not be cut down or touched and force industry to change the way that they're operating so that they would have to take the billions of plastic that's created and convert those into usable products like fence boards, like decks, like house infrastructure builds and start to stop utilizing the resources that are supporting the earth and start utilizing the resources that we've already created and reusing them to bring value back to society so that the lungs of the earth will continue to keep breathing and we'll stop breaking them down and ruining them. So my goal was always that no matter what, I wanted to buy and build up some sort of social system that would prevent anybody from tearing down any more forests and forcing people to work around that and finding other resources. And that could go for every other resource that we're beating up on and digging into the earth for. Uh, but that was the biggest one because it changes the way the airflow works in the system. It changes erosion in the way water systems flow. So there is a million things that tie out from protecting the forest and the land uh, that we're not looking at or paying attention to. And that changes the, how the world works. And you know what? We're having uh, 12 degrees in March in Toronto. That's all caused because of the way we operate and function and uh, the resources that we keep tearing down. So I think that if the world starts to be more innovative and finds ways to work around it, I think that we can start saving a lot of the trees 
which will save the bees, which will save a lot of the infrastructure that we need to survive in the next 100 years. Perfect. Uh, gr great answer to that. I was hoping you say climate change or the oceans. Uh, I, I, I completely behind, behind you on that, completely the same thing. Uh, Jeff, this has been great. I wish I could, we could do another hour of this, but I know I've taken so much of your time. Uh, no, always, you. Yeah, always a pleasure, man. Um, fascinating conversation as always. And for everyone who's tuned in, uh, thanks for listening in. Stick around for a few minutes. We'll do a quick debrief. But other than that, uh, this has been great. Thank you. Pleasure. Always a pleasure. Rav, you're a great man. And thank you for, uh, for having me back on. Um, and looking forward to, uh, to collaborating again.